This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Alison Puglio. Alison is a natural historian, ecologist and environmental photographer. She joined me in the studio to talk all about her extraordinary life travelling the globe to capture and study all kinds of fungi. Alison believes we need to care about the conservation of fungi as much as any other living organism. Alison's book, The Allure of Fungi, is out through CSIRO Publishing. I now have with me in the studio Alison Puglio, who is an honorary fellow at the ANU. She's also a natural historian and ecologist and an environmental photographer. And she focuses her attention on fungi, although I believe um, her training was in freshwater science, which is fascinating. Uh, And we're going to be speaking all about her work as well as her book that came out uh, through CSIRO Publishing called The Allure of Fungi, which is just beautiful and also fascinating. It's a really great um, non-fiction read, but it's written in a really literary way. So uh, I'm pleased to welcome Alison now and thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. It's such a pleasure to be here in the Triple R studios. It's good to have you back. We were just saying that uh, it's been a while since you've been in here in person. Absolutely. Yeah, so let's um, talk about fungi, which is very, very exciting, I've got to say. Um, I was saying earlier in the show that I had the pleasure of interviewing Peter Volubin about the hidden life of trees, and that was the first exposure I had to this idea that there is a whole network under the ground that is not just a tree's root system, uh, but that it's really connected up with fungi um and a very set kind of i mean it's called mycelium that's correct yeah and so there's this fascinating web underneath going underneath the ground as well as the kind of visual um, elements of fungi that we see on top of the ground at very transient moments in the seasons can you share with us first up what this um idea is of this is it called the wood wide web? Absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's a great metaphor because we, we know about the internet and we know how wonderful it is for communication, all this interconnectivity, but that also exists there in nature. So the idea of the mycelium underneath the soil, within the soil, providing this fundamental architecture of pretty much every terrestrial ecosystem on the planet, Mm. but also linking up all of these trees. And you mentioned Peter's book, and I think he's done a wonderful job of putting this into people's consciousness and awareness. And when you think of a forest, of being completely connected in this way, you walk very differently through the forest. We practice conservation very differently. We think very differently, not just about the forest, Mm. but our own gardens and parks and every ecosystem. So I think this is really captured the public consciousness and imagination and awareness in so many wonderful ways. Yeah, and one of the elements that um, I was not that surprised by but hadn't really been aware of was the very much the fact that fungi is very distinct as a kingdom essentially it is its own kingdom and it's not in the plant system that's correct it's a great great distinction you make and most of our understanding of how nature is organized comes from people like Carl Linnaeus or Charles Darwin where we had this notion of there just being this dichotomy something is either a plant 
or an animal. And fungi are the true unruly renegades in that they contravene the the rules of both. So that they've got their whole own kingdom, as you said, and they're very, very different to plants and animals. They're very, very different organisms in terms of how they're made, in terms of how they live. In fact, they were put in the, the plant kingdom for a long time because they were stationary, they weren't moving around like animals, they didn't look like animals, they didn't look like, look like plants either, but mm. the early scientists couldn't quite work out what they are. But we now know they're actually more closely related to animals and plants in terms of the material their cells are made out of, in terms of how they obtain nutrition. So they don't photosynthesise like plants, they don't lose the sun, use the sun, yeah. but they actually digest organic material just like we do. We do it internally, internal digestion, they do it externally. So they basically sit in their food and slobber, <laughs> to borrow from psychologist <laughs> Tom May, in terms of they just secrete these enzymes into the surrounds and they absorb what they need. So mm. very interesting organisms and I think that's part of why they're so curious to me. They, they have this whole separate kingdom, whole different way of, of living that really does contravene a lot of the ways we think about nature, a lot of the assumptions we have. Yeah, and they have been, I guess, a bit unfairly maligned by many people over history. Indeed. I recall you saying that um, Charles Darwin called fungi lowly beggars. Lowly beggars, yes, indeed. And I think it's because they were too confounding. They couldn't work out what they are. And I think because they occupy the subterrane, they Mm. occupy darkness, they don't need light in the way plants do. And I think... Because they were so ephemeral, the mushrooms came up, they suddenly appeared, the next day they'd vanished. They really triggered our imaginations. We tried to explain why is it must be connected with the supernatural or with witchcraft or with things that we, we can't explain. So I think because of that... They got associated with things such as witchcraft or supernatural or those terrible things called women. (laughs) (laughs) It was the women who held the knowledge, you know, the fungal lore about fungi. Is that that right? Yeah, if you look back through history, a lot of cultures, it was the grandmothers who passed the knowledge of which fungi were beneficial for their medicinal use or which ones were edible. It was the the grandmothers who passed it down to mothers and on to daughters and grandchildren and Mm. perhaps that was just because... The men were doing the heavier work of harvesting the fields. You know, mushrooms come up in autumn, mm. so there's a lot of harvest. Perhaps that's why harvesting to be done. So the women developed that knowledge, which of course was gradually taken away from them. Yeah, and some of the- as as happens every time women become an expert in something that's or have correct. power. Yeah, indeed. Gosh, it's fascinating, really, as well, though, that they are so ephemeral, and also you have to be very observant to note the different species and when they're there and if they're edible or not. And that kind of um, careful observation is something which obviously scientists have, but certainly I think, you know, a lot of women over history would have been very fascinated by what's going on around them and and notice those small things and also notice important things like medicinal properties because they want to, to care for their families. Indeed, and I think you're right. I think it's about that extended observation over time, being Mm. in situ, being out there in the field or the forest, where the fungi are, observing when they come up, where they come up, how long they last, and particular qualities that we can't get today just from looking at them online. Like so much of it's sensorial. So much of the way we distinguish different mushrooms and other fungi is about the smell or the texture or the taste, although taste is something you don't start with as a sense until you have a really good idea about the kingdom and which ones could kill you. <laughs> but that's one of the wonderful 
benefits I've had, the great privilege of living half a year in Europe. So I spend the autumn here, then I head to Europe. And just watching how the Europeans do it, and often the very first thing they'll do when they pick up a mushroom is not look at it, but hold it straight to their nose. And you realise, yeah, we've lost a lot of that sensorial connection, not just with fungi, but nature in general. And, and there's so much you can learn just by touching the cap or the pileus, as we call it. And does it have a felty texture or a mucousy texture or a rough texture? And so much comes from senses other than the visual, which is our very much our dominant sense. Mm. What, um, what kind of countries in Europe do you travel around to to look at their types of fungi? So I'm based in Central Europe, in mm. Switzerland, which is a great springboard to other countries but I've worked a lot with the Germanic cultures but particularly going down to places like Italy where there's such wonderful long histories of consuming edible fungi also Mm. in France but Scandinavia is really interesting as well and Finland is very different to Norway very different again to Sweden the UK I guess is more like Australia in terms of English-speaking cultures tend to be what we call mycophobic or fearing of fungi. Yeah. So you'll find the Brits, the Americans, Canadians, New Zealanders, Australians, we've taken a lot longer to embrace fungi compared to many continental Europeans and Mm. some of the African countries and Asian countries. So all of them have something to offer and and language has a lot to do as well with how we understand fungi. So in English language, you don't have a lot of words for fungi, Mm. but it's very different in in European languages. Interesting. Mm. I'm wondering also... So within the UK, there's such a different range of cultures and there's you know, Wales and Scotland in yeah. particular who have their own languages That's as right. well. Yeah. Are there any differences between those kind of parts of the UK? That's an interesting question. I haven't actually looked at the differences in English language. I guess the United Kingdom is such a highly modified place yeah. in terms of most of the, I guess, original habitat has gone. I think it mm. was... McFarlane, Rob McFarlane, who said there's only about 3% of the, I guess what you call natural habitat or original habitat left. So I guess I've been drawn to those countries where perhaps there's a little bit more natural habitat. But I would say that there are. Perhaps, you know, if you go to some of those outer Hebridean islands of Scotland, there'll be very different fungi and languages and understanding compared to if you're somewhere, say, close to to London. I think, Mm. you know, I think I'm sure there would be differences. I mean, you see that in Australia as well. Yeah. There's some beautiful islands like Orkney Islands and Isle of Skye. Absolutely. That are very wild. They are. Yeah. I went on a really curious foray in the Outer Hebridean Islands years ago with the British Mycological Society to look at a particular group of fungi. Yeah. And uh, and a rare fungus that grows only out there on old hazel trees. And mm. and there's a huge passion about these very obscure fungi that grow in the most remote and unusual places. And I think there's all these you know strange groups of kooks out there <laughs> who, who like their particular groups of fungi. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what is really special about this area as well, is that there's so many passionate people who are Mm. not um, necessarily trained scientists or it's not their whole full-time job to Mm. to study fungi but are still absolutely passionate and fascinated by it and still engage in citizen science about this as well. What's your kind of experience around that and I guess in Europe but also in Australia? Is there... um, a passion, a kind of um, grassroots passion for fungi. There is. And look, you're spot on. There's so many different, I guess you could say, entry points to fungi. So the first thing I always ask people when they come out on a foray is why they're there. Are they looking for edible species or hallucinogenic species (laughs) or are they photographers or artists or sometimes I get philosophers who are out there or I might get eco-lit people or all sorts of different areas of interest. I might be working with traditional owners or perhaps rangers or conservationists who want to know are they looking after the fungi when they 
they look after a particular part of you know piece of habitat. So mm. I'm always fascinated why people come along. I have linguists who come along. Then I have gardeners, horticulturalists who are trying to get fungi back into their gardens and get that wonderful network that you mentioned at the beginning, yeah. that network of mycelium that actually holds the soil particles apart. It allows the soil to be aerated and for water to trickle down very gently down to those deeper horizons. So there's people who are recognising the importance of actually getting that fungal architecture back into their, their gardens and other landscapes. So mm. there is this huge range, huge range of people who are fascinated. And I think for many... It's just sheer curiosity. You see something come up, it has this strange form. It's not always that cap and stalk style familiar mushroom, but you get these things called anemone starfish that you know have these incredible red-like tentacles that unfurl. And then as yeah. they develop, they produce this brown slurry that smells like a decomposing <laughs> wombat. <laughs> and you think, you know, what sort of evolutionary pressures drive something to look and smell like that? And, yeah. and maybe that isn't the question on everyone's mind who comes along, but I think they really do spark the imagination. Yeah, they do. It reminds me of um, your discussion in your book about the French naturalist who came to Australia yes. and encountered, I think, was it That's that funky? Yeah, exactly. What was it called? It's called Aceroa rubra is the Latin name, or the anemone starfish, or anemone stinkhorn. Yeah. It was Jacques Labiadiere, and mm. he was here in... I think 1790 is part of the Dontracasto expedition in southern Tasmania. So that was the very first fungus to be described in Australia. And I think because it was so flamboyant, you know, this yeah. colour and strange form and an incredible smell, I think it really captured his eye. I and mean, it was never going to be just a little brown mushroom that <laughs> caught the eyes of the first explorers. Fair enough. And um, I, just to touch on how people get into fungi, it would be remiss of me to not ask how you were, I guess, in, made curious or inspired by fungi. What was it that initially got you interested or how did you encounter fungi? Look, I guess all of it was interesting, not just the fungi. Yeah. So as a young child walking around in dead, crawling around in the bush, everything was interesting. There was ants scurrying everywhere. There was these amazing black beetles clambering through the leaf litter. There was orchids and mosses and sundews glittering in the morning light and all these things. But the fungi did hold this other level of allure because they mm. seemed... They weren't just decorations in the bush. They had this other level of fascination, and I think it is to do with that ephemerality. But, you know, I really like this question. I don't know whether you saw that interview a few years ago between Barack Obama and David Attenborough and it was actually Attenborough's 90th birthday and Barack invited him to the White House mm -hmm. to ask him you know what could the American people do to get on top of all these massive pressing environmental issues species extinction climate change all the rest and I really liked how Attenborough turned the question around because Obama said, you know, how do we get people interested in nature? And Attenborough said, well, the question should really be, why did people lose it? Because every child is inherently yeah. interested. They're fascinated. If you put them somewhere on the ground, in the forest, in the bush, in the garden, wherever, they're, they're naturally drawn to these colours and shapes and movements. So what happens that we lose it? And sometimes I'm curious about this question you ask because I think, well, isn't everybody? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Isn't everyone fascinated in it I mean. they should be that's my view I'm a little bit biased <laughs> <laughs> I was just um looking at some of the photos that you've taken because they're so 
um, visual and artistic, I guess, and have oh, such, such different aesthetics. And, you know, it's across a whole colour spectrum, isn't it, the, the types oh, yeah. of fungi you encounter. In Australia, I know you've um, kind of looked at the level of diversity of fungi and you've stated that it, Australia is really quite unique in terms of its um, climates and that can lead to that level of species diversity. Mm -hmm. yep. What kind of level of diversity do we have in Australia that, that you've kind of looked at and encountered and do we have a idea of how many types of species and it probably won't be very accurate because how, how do we know? But. You're right, and we are starting to count them. But look, there's just so few people studying mycology in mm. Australia, and that's why these citizen science programs are so great. But Australia is one of 18 countries that are regarded as mega diverse. So that means those 18 countries constitute about 80% of the world's total biodiversity, so total number of species. And if you think about the amount of latitude we have in Australia, if you drew a line, say, from far north Queensland, all the way down, right down through Victoria, down to Tasmania's South Bruni Island, and you think about all those different ecosystems you'd move through. So you'd mm. start up at Thursday Island, you've got mangroves, you've got coastal ecosystems, your sand dunes, you move up through the tropical rainforests of Queensland, far north Queensland, then you come into savannah grasslands. As you come further south, you come into temperate ecosystems, alpine ecosystems, you might go through some desert area, all the way down to those magnificent tall stringy bark forests of southern Tasmania. Every one of those ecosystems is comprised of different plants and plants often have particular fungi associated with mm. them. They also each have their own microclimates, microhabitats and all of those have been exploited by different fungi. So that great diversity of plant species... Microclimates, microhabitats means we have this incredible diversity of accompanying fungi. I mean, if you were just to take, say, a country like Switzerland, where I spend a lot of my time as well, yeah. there's no mangroves, there's no coast, mm, <laughs> it's yeah. landlocked, there's no deserts, there's no tropical ecosystems. I mean, there's all these other wonderful ecosystems there, but there isn't that mega diversity of different climates and and ecosystems like we have in Australia, and that's why we have this incredible diversity, that along with our isolation for such a long time in geological history. Yeah, right. It reminds me of one of the articles you wrote um, from 2013 called Intimate Strangers of the Subterrain, and it was looking at a tiny blue organism in so the Central Highlands? Uh, in the Otways, I think Otways. it was. There yes, you go. Yeah. And it was um, the Mycena Interrupter. That's correct, yeah. Could you share with us what that is? Because oh, it sounds amazing. So, it is. It's called the Pixie's Parasol. And I think there's so few fungi in nature that are blue. And it's this intense mm. blue. It's tiny. It's the size of your little fingernail usually. So it's this tiny little thing, intense colour. And you know what? If you take kids out to the bush, to wet forests, it's mainly in wetter forests, yep. they always spot it. And I think that's what happened to me that's at cool. the age of seven, crossing the, I think it was the Erskine River, one of those Otways, oh, yeah. wonderful rivers, and I slipped on this log and I saw these tiny blue eyes looking at me from this <laughs> other log. And again, they just captured my imagination. And a few years back, we were thinking about trying to make a particular fungus a flagship in conservation so a species that you know we have koalas and other what we call charismatic megafauna yep. and wonderful orchids and things as well but there's few fungal flagships where people say this is the species that captures the broader imagination mm. and so I took photos of about a dozen 
what I consider to be very aesthetic or beautiful species. And we asked a whole range of different people which was their favourite. And of all these different, they're all different colours and shapes and forms and different all these different manifestations. And I think about 40 or 50% of people all chose the pixie's parasol. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's just so I'm endearing. I'm not surprised. I was just, I'm looking at it right now and it's pretty and gorgeous yeah it's just and the blue is so unique it is, isn't it it's very unique in nature in the fungal world yeah and, and it's i like think an aqua it is very yeah. intense and and so short-lived these things can last just a few days so you have this sense of privilege of, of mm. seeing it in this very very short life of the the fruit well not the organism because it's actually there in the wood but the actual reproductive part the mushroom yeah very short-lived and how do you approach that from a photography perspective when they're so minuscule like how do you I don't know do you have to get up really close to them and yes. make sure you don't blow it away that's or? right you've got to be careful not to breathe on them or they quiver and collapse in front of your eyes <laughs> so, look photographing fungi is incredibly challenging because so many of them do grow in the darkest wettest parts of the forest and you know, you've yeah. got to avoid getting that leech up your nose while you're trying to photograph them the low light and often the light's filtered through the canopy so there's all sorts of challenges of colour and low light and the creatures of the forest but yeah. I think today the cameras are so advanced and we've all got cameras on our phones now and all these sorts of things and that's a, a great part of these sorts of projects like iNaturalist and these online platforms where you can post things and have them identified but actually taking a really captivating image of a mushroom for me is an enormous challenge and if I get one photograph in a day when I go out photographing I'm pretty happy mm. so there is a lot of time involved and yeah but it's, it's a wonderful thing and but I think a big part of it it's just, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's, it's observing them in the first place. Yeah. It's actually developing that sensitivity and awareness and, and acute observation skills. Mm. And, well, one of the things that I thought um, is beautiful that you wrote is that one may even consider fungi to be extraordinarily expressive organisms. It just seems to capture it really well, oh, doesn't it? Oh, thank you. And it's just... I don't know. There's this inner life when you look at it, I guess, that you could imagine what's going on. <laughs> you, you see the top of it, but there's, yeah, there's this whole other world that kind of can capture your imagination. How do you also look at what's going on underneath and, and get an idea of that, given how, you know, thin and tiny, I guess, the mycelium is and that it's distributed out so far. Yeah, look, and that's where fungi do become so astonishingly arcane. I mean, the, the mushrooms themselves or the other what we call sporophores, the fruit bodies, sometimes yeah. I like to use the word sporophores because fruit bodies, you know, likens them Sounds to, like to plants and yeah. they're not. But they have all these wonderful manifestations that are fascinating. Mm. But for me, the really exciting part is what you mentioned. It's this notion that they do provide this network of connectivity, it's this sharing of resources. And mm. you mentioned Peter's book, Peter Volleben's book, but a lot of his research was tied in or connected to the work of Suzanne Simard, who's a British Columbian scientist and she was working in the forests of British Columbia and she worked out that in a forest and they're different forests to our ecosystems although you can also translate a lot of that to these ecosystems as well but she worked out that the hub tree in one of those forests so a hub tree is an older tree a mother tree sometimes they're called in a forest she worked out by looking at the mycelium and the connectivities on average it's connected to 47 other trees wow and that's a very different way of thinking about a forest if you affect one tree one of these older trees in a forest you potentially 
actually affect 47 or more. That's just the average number of trees. And this idea of it's very hard to explain this to people. You say, people say, what do you mean the mushroom's connected to the tree? Well, yeah. it's not the mushroom, as you said. It's the, the mushroom's just the organ of the organism. Mm. So the mycelium, this tapestry or interconnected network of these long white fibres called hyphae, these long white cells that are, as you say, they're microscopic. It's why it's hard to imagine them. They actually branch out, continually branch out, and they form a sheath around the roots of trees and effectively extend out their root system, increasing the absorptive capacity of that root system. So the tree then has a much greater chance to access more water and a greater range of nutrients Mm. because plants can't actually solubilise or make absorbable the things they need, whereas fungi have this amazing artillery or, or... I guess you could say chemist shop full of chemicals or things called enzymes that can break down all those recalcitrant compounds like lignin and cellulose that give wood its hardness. The tree itself can't break those down. So they need that fungal partner in this symbiotic relationship to actually secrete those enzymes, break down the wood, make all those things absorbable, Mm. and then they transport that back to the tree. And in return, the tree gives the fungus a lovely fed of sugars that it produces through photosynthesis. So it's this beautiful two-way sharing of resources. But then it gets even more bizarre because the tree can transport that to another tree in the forest via this wood-wide web or underground network of fungi. So it really changes the whole way we think about ecosystems and this traditional... I mean, don't get me wrong, Darwin and Linnaeus gave us these wonderful systems for thinking Mm. about nature, but they focused on the individual biological autonomy of species not the connections. Yeah. So Linnaeus was about giving everything an individual discrete name, which is wonderful that we have this naming system. We can talk to people across the world and speak the same language, but it overlooked the fundamental interconnectivity. Mm. And I sometimes think if we used mycelium, the fungal body, as the prototype of life, our whole way we think about nature, but also our social systems could be very, very different It'd be much more about this interconnection, sharing of resources, much more about collaboration Mm. and competition and the whole way. Perhaps even our political systems, our social systems could work from a very different premise. Yeah. Now I know why philosophers go on your tours. (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) It's very profound. (laughs) I I was really fascinated to hear that uh, these mycelium underneath the ground are so fine that they can be up to 100 times finer than tree roots. Yes, indeed. And that's why they're so effective at getting in between all those tiny cracks and crevices and those interstitial spaces between the grains of sand and soil. The plant root, even a rootlet, a very, very small plant root, it's a big clunky thing. It can't actually get in between those spaces. So Mm. the fungal mycelium has much more opportunity to exploit all that territory that the big clumsy plant root can't actually get to. So it's that fineness that gives them that capacity to exploit much more territory, gain more water, more nutrients. But in the process, also put that architecture in. And that's the thing we've lost from most of our agricultural soils Mm. because we've done all these things like tilling where we break up that gossamer-thin network of threads like compaction where we have these heavy machines like drowning them because we over-irrigate mm. or we poison them through the application of nitrates, phosphates, 
potassium in excess. Anything in excess is toxic. So we've done things that have actually removed that whole architecture of the soil. I mean, it seems fundamentally fundamentally anti-intuitive, but there's been this big turnaround, Amy. I'm so excited to see these progressive farmers recognise that the fungi do exactly the same thing as irrigating and applying fertilisers, except the fungi do it better. <laughs> so there's been this return, you know, the no-till approach of, mm. of permaculture and, and other approaches that's trying to actually retain that framework in the soil. So it's a very exciting time of seeing this transition. Yeah. It reminds me about um, native forest logging as well because the approach is often to log a certain area but leave a few trees around for native species to still be able to live in, yeah. um, which is, you know, a very flawed approach in my mind about you know preserving an ecosystem and an endangered species but i wonder whether that also would disrupt the the kind of fungi networks underneath when you get rid of a, a whole mass of trees that were using one system and leave one standing out by itself and then burn the area afterwards look it was a step the intention was good by leaving those so-called habitat trees it was a step towards recognizing that the forest is more than just wood that there's actually species that you know live there and that the forest is a whole organism so it was well intentioned you're right it's (laughs) it's token in, in in the in the bigger context but i think the thing is as you said i mean all of our conservation, not just in Australia but globally, has focused on flora and fauna. Mm. Even if you think about our national, our, our state piece of legislation to protect species, the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act, where's the third F? The fungi aren't there. So yeah. the framework for how we've tried to protect biodiversity has only looked at flora and fauna. And if you look at any national park management plan, if you look at any Shire Council biodiversity strategy, they very rarely even include fungi. So everything's Mm. been about protecting that endangered orchid or that bandicoot (laughs) or whatever. But now we're starting to recognise this connectivity. And that's why I think Vol Levin's book was important and this new film, Fantastic Fungi, is important because it puts the focus back onto the networks. And fungi are just starting to find their way into these sorts of strategies. Even our national biodiversity strategy, which was a requirement of being part of the product, uh, the Kyoto Protocol, it didn't even mention fungi until a few years ago, until it was revised and we managed to get fungi in there. But Jeez. So they haven't been in the consciousness, in our, in our awareness, but it is changing and people are now seeing that the fungi are the third important and connective kingdom. So, And I think also it's about changing those negative ideas about them. And if you looked at some of the early management plans of national parks, if they mentioned fungi, it was yeah. only in the sense of them being pathogenic organisms that are a threat to this other thing called biodiversity, i.e. Mm. plants and animals. So, But I think it's changing and I'm very excited, as you said earlier, to see people come to fungi from all these different perspectives and starting yeah. to recognise, gee, if I do this in my garden, if I rake up all the leaf litter, I take all the habitat away, I remove yeah. all the food, food yeah. and I compromise every single plant in the garden. Yeah. So don't rake your leaves. Don't rake your leaves. That's the moral of the story. I feel like this is always the moral of every ecosystem chat I have. It's like, don't mow your lawn because the weeds will grow up and have flowers and feed the bees and don't, you know, spray your weeds because that'll kill the bugs and, yeah, don't rake the leaves. It's interesting. It's good. It's, it's always this battle. It's very hands-off. It is, I think, and, and I think it's, it's always this, I guess, battle for people between yeah. aesthetics and ecology yeah you know wanting it to look a certain way mm. but i guess 
it's time we challenge some of our preconceived notions about what is beauty in a garden. Yeah. Maybe a little more wild could be. And seeing all those pixies parasols come up, you're not going to get those without your leaf litter. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it reminds me of that beautiful film, The Secret Garden, because it had been abandoned and locked up for so long. And when they, you know, find The Secret Garden, it is this mystical, magical place Mm. with so many different things happening because it hasn't been touched by humans. Yeah, indeed. And look, often there's a lot of flack against the conservation movement who are often accused of just wanting to lock up forests. But I also think, you know, life is fundamentally symbiotic. Mm. All life is. It's not some alternative strategy for existence. All life is symbiotic. But like any good relationship... They need it needs space. So sometimes yeah. the forest does need a break, or the garden does need a break from our need to control and manage. And we always we still tend to have this narrative of the ruler and the dominator and the manager. Yeah. Whereas in fact, you'll see more progressive conservation moving toward the steward, but even beyond the steward to the participant. So this notion of moving from this biblical idea that everything in nature is there for our exploitation, mm. whether the rule or the dominator, then moving to the idea of the steward that perhaps we need to tend and care for. But even the steward sees n- nature as being outside of us. Even yes. We have to go even beyond that steward nature to the participant where everything we do to nature will fundamentally affect us. And mm. I, even this idea of we need to protect the forest is flawed because the forest actually protects us. Yes. And I think doing that reversal actually does quite change the framework for how we consider nature and make decisions about it. Yeah, and it raises that approach that Indigenous Australians have to nature and to the country, which is that, you know, they're part of country and country is part of them. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's pretty much right throughout any Indigenous culture. You'll mm. see that in North America, you'll see that South America, you'll see it all over the world. I think it's that, that, that idea of nature being inherently part of who we are and that history, that time is different, that the notions of place and space are very, very different and ownership, that ownership notion doesn't exist in the same way. Yeah. And um, one of the other elements I thought about just then, because I had a chat with a fire ecologist, um, gosh, two weeks ago now, and he was talking about um, how he was kind of saddened by the extreme bushfires we saw, which were quite um, extra in terms of intensity and and Mm. catastrophic levels in some cases in terms of that heat um, and how it's affected soil. Mm. And I was wondering, do we understand how climate change and extreme bushfires affect fungi and, you know, are there some fungi that um, thrive from fire like there are some trees and then are there others that are, you know, absolutely... You know, destroyed. You're spot on. So, like animals and plants, there are those fungi that are pyrophilous or fung- fire loving that actually do respond to fire. Some fungi come up after fire. In fact, fungi are some of the first organisms to recolonise after an area has been burnt. So they're very highly adapted, but many, many fungi will be wiped out. If the fire, it's all about degree. Mm. If a fire is intense enough, long enough, Uh, covering a big enough area gets deep into the soil you're basically going to sterilize the soil so we lose not just the mycelium but also the reserve of spores the spore bank the seed bank so many fungi will be wiped out and if that fire is across across a large area like it isn't sort of a patchy burn it's going to take a while for those spores to blow back in or for animals to bring those back in and so certainly some fungi are adapted but i think we really don't have 
any idea about the extent to which these fires are affecting fungi, but I think mm. we can assume, based on the, if we take, I guess, a, an approach of seeing that the plants and the animals are, are largely, you know, catastrophically affected, the fungi will be as well. But, you know, I'm always amazed at the resilience of the Australian bush. Mm. It has such capacity to regenerate. But I just think over time, when we have these fires more frequent, more intense, more expansive, that when that keeps happening, you you fundamentally break down the resilience of an ecosystem and its capacity to bounce back. I think when we yeah. have these repeated fires, over time you start to lose that diversity of species. And once you start to homogenise a system, you weaken it. So yeah. I think you know we've, what we what we lose with the fungi, we lose a lot of things like the organic matter on the ground, the logs and those particular habitats that certain fungi inhabit. So I think a lot of the ways we, we use fire in management don't take fungi into consideration. And what we don't often talk about is we talk about plants as producers, animals as consumers, but the fungi are the recyclers. And if we don't have this very important process of recycling and releasing locked up nutrients in forests, again, we... We lose our plant species. We yeah. lose our animals as well. So the fungi really are that. It all comes back to what you're saying. They really are that connective tissue that enable that architecture but also build the health and resilience in forests. Yeah. I'm speaking with Alison Puglio, who is a natural historian, an ecologist and an environmental photographer. And we're talking about the allure of fungi and also the conservation of fungi and the diversity of fungi in Australia and around the world. Um, I went to the University of Melbourne's herbarium and was very struck by something called a cordyceps. Ah, yes. Which was kind of scary <laughs> when I looked at it. And I was wondering if you could share with us this fascinating fungi, which has, I guess, a unique function that not all fungi have. You're absolutely right. They're a fascinating group. So a lot of fungi, I just mentioned, they're recyclers. And there's mm. those ones we talked about earlier that connect up to trees. We call these ones mycorrhizal, mycofungus rhizal root, where they actually share nutrients between the, the tree. Then there's another group that have a different way of getting their nutrition, and it's parasitism. They're parasites. Yeah. So that means they take something from their host, but they don't give anything back. And the cordyceps are a group of fungi that parasitize particular invertebrates, so spineless creatures. So it might be a caterpillar or a moth or an ant or a spider or a stick insect. And what they actually do, the mycelium moves into the body cavity of the organism Sometimes perhaps a, maybe it might be a, like the ones you mentioned at the, the herbarium, might be a caterpillar. It's eaten a spore unintentionally. The spore is germinated. Yeah. The mycelium is formed inside the animal's digestive tract. It's fed on the, di the food in the digestive tract and then it's fed on the, the caterpillar itself. And they mm. kill the caterpillar in the process and shoot their their sporophore or fruiting structure out through the, the head of the caterpillar. So it's quite a macabre thing. But again, just coming back to Attenborough, he said mm. something very important in when he was talking about cordyceps. And he was talking about this in the context of the Amazonian forests. And he said the purpose of these cordyceps, other than to entertain us, and <laughs> is to actually... Oh, what could I say, control or manage, stop any one invertebrate species from dominating in the forest. It keeps mm. check. I don't want to say the equilibrium or balance because those ideas are sort of out of date, but it, I guess it keeps a check on the invertebrates in the forest and it stops any one species from getting out of hand and dominating and wiping out other species. So there you go. The fungi mm. have a purpose even in their most macabre manifestations. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I think David Attenborough did a video, like a very slow motion video of Isn't it this. Superb? Yeah. yeah. 
yes, which you can see on YouTube and yes. other platforms. Um, it's so fascinating to hear. Now, to talk... Uh, to finish out our discussion and to talk about um, some of the really different fungi that we may not have kind of touched on, there was one um, that's visually really striking that we were talking about off air that is featured in the 2018 State of the World's Fungi Report, which is in fact a photo that you took. Yes, it is. And what is it of and what is this fascinatingly and stunning fungi? So you're talking about the ghost fungus yeah. or Omphalotus nidi formus and it I think it's probably again one of our most charismatic fungi because if by chance you happen to be in the forest at night and you've got your torch turned off you might see this curious green glow often around the base of trees because this fungus has this compound called luciferase it's a fantastic <laughs> name and it, it bioluminesces it emits this light from its own biochemistry and you can't see it if you've got your torch on you have to let your eyes adapt and we don't really know why it does it there's been some research to try and look at perhaps it was trying to attract a nocturnal vector like a moth or some kind of nocturnal mammal mm. to help distribute its spores but that res- research shows that that actually isn't the case and so I think it's probably they light up to help the wombats find their way through the forest. Oh that's, that's such theory. a nice idea. <laughs> so but certainly fascinating species. Yeah well they have that kind of a look of I guess an oyster mushroom. They do you're absolutely right and they were originally categorised in that genus Pleurotus the same ones we buy in the supermarket and sometimes people confuse it for oyster mushrooms they eat it and it contains a very powerful emetic which means you that it tries to expel itself out of whichever orifice it can get out of faster Mm. um, (laughs) and then you start to glow this incredible green i'm only joking (laughs) (laughs) you would know (laughs) because i don't think many people would probably get the chance to see these fungi well so not many people walk in the forest at night Night, yeah um, i guess the thing to do is try and spot them during the day so you don't slip down a wombat hole in the night (laughs) so try and actually they do look like an oyster mushroom they form these lovely big nests like nidiformis means nest forming Mm. big oyster-shaped nests, white or grey. Sometimes they can be even purplish in colour around often the bases of trees. And they're out at the moment. They're out in the Otways. It's very early in the season because we've had these rains. That's right, yeah. But commonly in pine forests, also in native bush. So they're quite a common fungus. So spot them during the day and then head back at night time. That's so cool. Mm. Um, One of the others we didn't get to touch on was lichen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who, you know, see this on wood and they might live in the coast and see lichen. Lichen kind of drawing up nutrients. Yes, yes. How does lichen interact and what does it look like for those who may not be aware but probably have seen it in some form? Yeah, so lichens are the ultimate symbiosis. They, they are a, every lichen is two organisms. It's an alga and a fungus living in this intimate association. Sometimes it's even a menage a trois. There's other things in there <laughs> as well like cyanobacteria. So every lichen is this combination of different organisms and they come in all these different forms. So the beard lichens as the name suggests hang from brand is like these wonderful beards. Then you've got other lichens that just form this crust on rocks. You've probably yeah. seen down at the Wilson's Promontory those big orange granitic boulders and that I orange do, yeah. is actually oh. a lichen and 
they're often called extremophiles, lovers of the extremes. And if you think of those ones at Wilson's Promontory, they're right in the splash zone. So they're getting salt water. They're getting sand-laden, abrasive winds. They're getting the guano, the droppings of seabirds. I mean, not many organisms can survive those extremes. So they're the ultimate survivors of the most extreme kinds of environments, including the Antarctic. Wow. So amazingly well adapted to extremes of solar radiation, of cold, of salt, of all these sorts of things that few other organisms can exist among. So they are fungi. They're classified as fungi because most of the organism actually is fungal. Mm, So another fascinating group of the fungal kingdom. It's so cool. Um, When If people are listening and they're very excited about fungi, as possibly as excited as myself and yourself, it might be difficult, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who are excited and have, I guess, thought about um, fungi but never really had a chance to see the different types in the wild in the actual places where they appear and certainly um, the reason why you split half your time here and half your time elsewhere is that it is seasonal how do people interact and um, get along and and maybe attend one of your workshops or um, tours to kind of get a, an up-close understanding Look, of their I'd local fungi. It's thrilled for people to come along and the best way is to get out there in the bush. I think yeah. getting out on a foray where you're seeing them in situ, seeing them in their environment is the best way. I've got various workshops running throughout Victoria and New South Wales in the next three, four months. So they're all on my website. There's also an organisation called Fungi Map, which has also that's the hub for all things fungal in Australia. But if they'd like to come along, my workshops are booking up pretty fast. Yeah. I've got various ones in the Otways place. Places like Forest, Apollo Bay, Gellibrand, Anglesey, Biragara. Also in central Victoria, I've got one coming up soon in Ballarat, which should be a really good wow. one just for yeah. a couple of hours. So I'd be thrilled if people would like to come along. Um, yes, exactly. And there is one next week which caught my attention uh, in Geelong, uh, which is a seminar um, called Clandestine Trists and, Be- Trists and Benevolent Acts. Um, but there's also, yeah, as you say, Woodend, Castlemaine, um, Bonagilla, Spargo Creek, Creswick, there's so many places um, and no doubt they all have different fungi. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. slightly different focus. So some are about how we identify fungi, some are about edible fungi, some are fungi for gardeners, looking how we encourage them in our gardens again. So each of them has a slightly different slant depending Mm. on people's interests. Great. Well, if people want to know more, um, they can find out all the information at Alison Puglio, P-O-U-L-I-O-T, Dot com, um, And uh, they can also look at your book, which uh, it's just it's visually beautiful, but also, I think, really um, written beautifully. Thanks. So, yeah, it's Thank just a, a delightful read. And um, it's called The Allure of Fungi, which is out through CSIRO and came out, I think, a couple of years ago. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I also should mention that you're here in Melbourne for another event tonight so people could even see you in person potentially. Yes, so there's a Malaysian-Norwegian author called Long Lit Wound who's going to launch her book The Way Through the Woods of Mushrooms and Morning at Reading's Bookshop tonight in Carlton. So I'll be in conversation with Wound. We'll be talking about her book and her experiences. So there's fungi everywhere, Amy. It's that all happening. so cool. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, yeah, and we should mention that they're not just in forests, they're in urban areas too. That's so true. people in... 
the city living yep. here, it's still absolutely just as applicable. Every garden's got fungi in it, yep. every park, they're all there. It's so great. Alison, thank you so much for your time and just your passion and, and yeah, delight. Thanks, you, Amy. And come along, come bush. <laughs> I will. I'm definitely going to have to now. And, and, yeah, I hope people, if at minimum, get to look at uh, Alison's beautiful photographs, which are really phenomenal and certainly an artwork in and of themselves. So, yeah, really thank you. Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Alison Puglio, who is a natural historian and ecologist and also an environmental photographer. And um, she uh, did her PhD on fungi at the ANU and um, she travels the world and Australia um, sharing her passion with everyone else and studying the very, very diverse range of fungi that the world has. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.